If you have a Bible, which we hope you do, please open it now to Acts chapter 6. Given the current zeitgeist or spirit of the age or current cultural situation, it's hard to believe anybody anymore, which makes me all so grateful for the word of the living God because that word is truth and we can trust it. And so we're going to look at some truth together this morning and hopefully that will serve to anchor us uh, in the waves and the gales of being a sea. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in chapter 6. We'll read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They were set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Give us ears, would you please, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we will be careful to give you glory, for you alone are worthy. In Christ's name, amen. Really simple story. It's what uh, English majors or those who study literature would call a narrative of resolution, which, by the way, is how most of the television shows you watch are constructed. Every show begins with a problem that needs to be resolved. And so a situational problem emerges, and then tension tightens as the show goes on. And so the tightening of the tension leads to a rising action of suspense. And then somewhere in the... Uh, last quarter of the episode, let's say you're watching uh, the FBI or some, some show, and then there will be a turning point in what it, where we can see that they're close to resolving the problem, and then tension starts to release and fall, and then there's the ending or the denouement in which the problem is resolved and life goes on. Life goes on. I didn't know I would ever quote that in a sermon. But there you have it. 
good old Beatles song. That's how stories move. We get this from Aristotle, who probably got it from God in a common grace way. Uh, he saw that in his book, The Art of Rhetoric. And so here we have a problem. Certain people are being overlooked in the food distribution. And these certain people are Hellenist widows. And they are very different than the Hebrew widows. We'll see that more in a moment. And because of this problem, uh, the church begins to act because there has been a counterattack um, against the church constantly by the enemy of our souls, Satan. He loves to uh, kill, uh, to steal, and destroy. And so he has attempted already to destroy this fledgling church through persecution from without and through hypocrisy from within. And now he attempts to disrupt and destroy the unity of the church by stirring it up over certain people being overlooked and not receiving equal treatment in the food distribution. And their complaint, by the way, was a legitimate complaint. Their needs were not being taken care of. And so one of the things that emerges here is that the church is beginning to look like the culture, in fact, with the disciples that are coming in from all tribes, nations, tongues, and kindred. Which leads us to something that uh, I learned in living is that variety can be the spice of life. So we say, and in many ways it can be true, differences make life interesting. Where I grew up in Tennessee, we never had Mexican food. For the first 17 or 18 years of my life, I never ate any Mexican food. Why? There were no Mexicans living where I was. There were two, two kinds of people, white people and black people. I think in my hometown there were three Jewish families that I remember and maybe two or three Catholic families. So you basically had white people and black people who were mostly Baptistic and then you had the other culture. So we didn't have Italian food. We didn't even have pizza until I was 20 years old in my hometown. So you say, well, what did you eat? We didn't have Chinese food. We didn't have Indian food. We didn't have any variety whatsoever. We ate a lot of catfish and a, and a lot of barbecue, which is why I still love catfish and barbecue, because I grew up on it. And then we had the regular sta uh, staple food that my mom preferred. But as I grew older, I began to see that the same food can become tedious if served three times a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. And so that different kinds of food in books, in friends, and experiences like traveling, sports, music, art, drama, hard labor, and relaxation can bring richness to our lives, a certain fullness. Differences between cultures do not always produce unpleasant experiences. Submerged in a culture, however, with a language foreign to our own, we may be overwhelmed by what is called culture shock or even an extended period of cultural fatigue. Everything seems strange to us. There's no sense of being home. Everything can become intimidated. Words, gestures, what you eat, how you greet, traffic laws, table etiquette, clothing style, sight, sound, smells. Too much, 
variety can become overpowering and even exhausting and paralyzing. When different kinds of people, that is different in language and nationality and tradition and economic status or even religious belief, rub against each other, friction is generated. It's generated. And fr friction can heat people to the point of ignition, producing violence. Uh, as people misunderstand each other and become suspicious of each other and are filled with prejudice or pride or anger or even become violent. When we think of that, we think about the long-standing hostility between the Arab and the Jew in the Middle East, Catholic and Protestant in Northern Ireland, black and white in South Africa, and black, white, Hispanic, and Asian in North America. Christ's church, then, is no stranger to the heat of cultural friction. Although the Spirit of Jesus Christ is committing a holy community in which believers readily part with their property to relieve each other's needs, the renovations of our attitudes and our behavior, as we all know, is far from complete. The counterfeit compassion of people like Ananias and Sapphira proved that paradise has not yet arrived. Even genuine believers grumbled. It's an interesting word, the word for complaint about the widows is the Greek word gogisimos. And uh, it's the same Greek word that's used in the Old Testament Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint uh, in which the people of Israel grumbled in their tents against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And it reached almost a fevered pitch. Very same word is used here, gogitzmas. And if you say it really fast in a low voice, it sounds like murmuring. There's grumbling in the tents. There's murmuring. People are upset about it. And so they're grumbling here about each other when some of the widows daily needs were being overlooked so that a practice that should have displayed Christian unity now threatened to disrupt that unity. The cultural boundary between two kinds of people Grecian Jews and Hellenistic or Hebraic Jews was a crack that ultimately could become a chasm. So something had to be done. Now by the way these two groups the Grecian widows Jews and the Hebraic widow Jews had very much in common. Both were Jewish. There we go. Together they confessed that the God of Israel is the only true and living God. Both were Christian. Together they had confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who died and was raised again in order to redeem us from our sin and death. Both shared in the great outpouring of the Spirit by which Jesus imparted his resurrection power on all who trust in him. With these shared convictions and experience, the unity of this Christian community had a lot going for it. But in an inefficient grocery delivery system, a minor problem became like a speck of sand in a hiking boot, became the irritant that could have split this church in half. And so the early Christians found 
however, that the differences that threaten division can be God's prodding tool to look beyond ourselves, beyond the circle of our kind of people, and to see the rich diversity of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language who are woven by the Spirit into a beautiful, multicolored, many-textured tapestry. If we try to keep the peace in the church by filtering out people who are not like us, not like-minded, who, who will or cannot adjust themselves to our comfort zone, then the artificial and the superficial unity that results will rest on the shifting sands of culture, tradition, and familiarity. God has a way of unsettling that. He has a way of unsettling our comfortable fellowship and challenging us to pursue the real thing instead. And that's precisely what happens here. Jesus tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, He Himself is our peace, who made both Jew and Gentile become one. Wow. Dismantling the dividing wall, the enmity in his flesh, in order to create the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man in himself, making peace, and to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross by which he killed the enmity. And if you can read that and stay a dispensationalist, have at it. I cannot. Some of you don't know what that is, ask me after the service. It's not really that important. Kind of, but not serious. So, the friction that results when different kinds of people have contact with each other is an inevitable byproduct when churches try to be faithful to the Great Commission. A church that only touches our, quote, kind of people in language, culture, social status, and background is a shrunken distortion of the church that is the holy Catholic, that is, universal church. The crucial question then is how do we handle this friction when it emerges? And Luke's commentary on the early churches wrestling with these issues points the way. Luke traces the skillful strategy of the all-wise God who solves a food problem among Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in a way that spreads the word of Jesus out from Jerusalem, north to Samaria, west to the coastal towns, northeast to Damascus, northwest to the Antioch, or to Antioch, and on across the great sea to distant lands at the ends of the earth. In many ways, this squabble over having food service delivery not being equal is the reason why you believe today. <laughs> and you say, Pastor Tim, how did you get there? Read the text. It's amazing what you'll find when you read the text. Because that is precisely what happens. In this chapter or in these seven verses we have an inclusio which means the days the disciples were increasing in number and then at the end verse 7 the word of God continues to increase and the number of disciples what multiplies greatly and so what causes this multiplication well it comes to us in a strange way God's strange ways. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts and his ways higher 
than ours. And so he uses this problem not just to get the first diaconate elected, because this is technically not a diaconate. That comes later in the epistle of Timothy and Titus. This is sort of the prototype of the diaconate solving these kind of problems. But the real purpose of this text, which is a surprise to me because I've probably preached it 15 times for deacons. But what I've learned today is God's doing a whole lot more here than that, as important as that is. So we have the magnificent seven who are elected here. That's what I like to call them. Uh, and they were diverse. Several types of diversity among people are important to Luke and the narrative of the seven servers. Most obvious is the difference in language between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Although both groups were Jewish in heritage and faith, and to a large extent in genealogical, genealogical descent, that is, they had the same Jews, Jewish in heritage and faith, Hellenist widows were used to thinking and speaking in Greek, while Hebrews normally spoke a Palestinian Semitic language, Hebrew or Aramaic. So we had a language difference. Many Hellenistic Jews had originally been part of the dispersion. That is, the scattering of the Israelites outside of their homeland, Palestine, that had begun with the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest in earlier centuries. Even Jews who had lived in Palestine were influenced by Hellenism, the spread of the Greek language and culture. Koine Greek was the lingua, lingua fra, uh, franca of the time. But Jews living among the Gentile peoples elsewhere in the Roman Empire were immersed in Greek language and lifestyle daily. Dispersion Jews constantly confronted the questions, what are the limits of involvement in Hellenistic culture for a Jew who seeks to be faithful to God's covenant? How much must Gentiles change their lifestyle if they wish to join us in service to God? How does a Jew or a proselyte worship the Lord while living far away from the temple in Jerusalem? Although dispersion Jews spoke Greek, they were divided among themselves regarding other cultural influences of Hellenism. And so dispersion Jews zealously maintained Judaism's distance from the pagan world opposing all compromise with Greek culture. This would have included Saul of Tarsus. Uh, his parents, of course, were Hebraic Jews and brought him to Jerusalem for rabbinical training, although they lived in Tarsus of Cilicia and possessed Roman citizenship. Now, I'm kind of going around the book, uh, world here to show you what the tension was. Acts 6 reveals to us that the church had begun to sort of separate from the temple at this point, less large group meetings, and became more house church oriented, which again heightened the language division. And so the division of language and culture was carried over into the church, and so Acts 6 reveals a diversity of need and ministry in the church. After Pentecost, the presence of God's Spirit in the church not only reconciled people to God through the gospel, but it also reconciled believers 
toward each other and filled them with a heart's commitment toward fellowship and community. As a result, material needs were met through the grateful generosity of more affluent Christians. A widow, if you study widows in the first century, they basically are helpless and their needs are powerful. And so as a result, material needs were met through generosity. Christ's saving work not only overcame the alienation between sinful human beings and a holy God, but set in motion antidotes to the toxic waste of that alienation, financial want, sickness, sorrow, suffering, and hostility to death. Although these two aspects of God's salvation and the church's ministry can never be separated from each other, the apostles recognized they had to be distinguished from each other. Therefore, each ministry of God's grace was entrusted to leaders who could give it their undivided attention. So look, the 12 in verse 2 summoned the full number and said, It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. They are not dividing labor according to worth. They're basically saying, my calling in life is to preach the word of God and to pray. And that consumes me and takes all my time. One of the things I'm so grateful to see here at Spring Meadows is elders who are committed to that responsibility for me, who help me do pastoral ministry so I can be freed to, to immerse myself in the Word of God and prayer for the church. And I also thank God for the diaconate we have here, which is basically committed to serving tables. Of course, Jesus told us he didn't come to deacon or to be deaconed, but he came to be a deacon, that is, give himself a ransom for many. And so the church has both spiritual needs that those God has called and gifted preach the word of God and pray. And it also has material needs so the gospel can go forth both in word and deed, in truth and in mercy, in grace and in love. And so as that happens in a church, we see that the apostle speaks of two types of ministries. Those who serve tables and those who serve the word. But they're all acts of service, of giving yourself away. Whether meeting the physical hunger of widows or the spiritual hunger for the word, the leadership in the church did the work of servants. And God gifted and equipped the believers to do so. But then we begin to see God's gateway to diverse people. The seven servers, servers elected and hands laid upon them, or chosen and hands laid upon them, are God's gateway for the gospel to even more diverse peoples. Listen to the way Luke lists these seven. In the list of the servers, verse 5, emphasis is placed on the first and the last ones chosen by the addition of descriptions. You know, by the way, only three of, two of them are noteworthy after this list. Stephen, and he, he, he doesn't have long. <laughs> by the end of chapter 7, he, he's in the presence of the Lord. And Philip, we see witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch later. But the ones Luke emphasizes for effect are Stephen and Nicholas. Stephen, 
because he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and the aptness of his description will become evident in the account that follows. Through Stephen's Holy Spirit-filled witness, the church will be pried loose from the temple in Jerusalem itself, and Nicholas, the last named, is described in two significant terms. First, he's a proselyte. Second, he's from Antioch. He is a foretaste of things to come. He is a proselyte, that is a Gentile, who first converted to the Jewish faith before believing the message of the Messiah. And he is a foretaste or an adumbration of the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. And his home city is Antioch in Syria, which will be the site of the first Gentile church mentioned by Luke in chapter 11. And the sending point of Paul's Gentile mission to the West, Acts chapter 13. These seven are not only compassionate servants of widows, but also the vanguard of the gospel's invasion into Gentile territory. Wow. Echoes of Numbers chapter 27 in Acts chapter 6 suggest a parallel between the appointment of Joshua as Moses' successor and that of Stephen and his fellow servants. By the way, you know this. When these guys opened the Bible to read it, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and on. They only had the Old Testament. So where would they seek God's will? in the Old Testament. And where do these, the twelve draw what they ended up doing? By looking at Moses and his successor, Joshua. Let me prove that for just a moment. The word, very word that Luke uses here for choosing seven men attested by others, Recall Moses' prayer, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, choose a man over this assembly. And so in the Old Testament Greek translation and in Luke's tra translation, Luke never uses this word for choose except in this instance. So obviously he must be looking to this in his selection. The Lord's answer to Moses' prayer is Joshua, just as the Lord's answer to the church's need in Acts chapter 6 is the appointment of the seven. Joshua is qualified to succeed Moses because he has the Spirit in himself. Similarly, the seven must be men full of the Spirit. Joshua was set apart for his leadership when Moses laid his hand upon him. Likewise, the seven were set apart as the apostles laid hands on them with prayer. Through these points of contact with the story of Joshua's appointment, the reader who knows the Old Testament is alerted, alerted to expect that the seven, like Joshua, will take lead in carrying God's gospel and dominion into a new Gentile territory. You remember, Joshua led Israel across the Jordan River into the Canaanite territory of Palestine, a land full of spiritual pollution and idolatry, but promised to Israel as their inheritance. Under Joshua, the land was purged to become God's holy territory. Now, the magnificent seven servants, servers, led as God's new Israel 
to be scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and through Antioch to the ends of the earth. They will carry the conquering light of God's kingdom into the regions of Gentile darkness, claiming the whole earth as God's holy territory. So you see the movement from the old covenant and the continuity of the work of God of taking his gospel across the world. Now, you may think, surely, Pastor, you're not sure about this, are you? And I would tell you that God's ways are strange to us. Why wouldn't they be? He's infinite. We're finite. He's uh, all-knowing and wise. We stumble in the dark. And so God uses this disruption in his church that could have led to the demise of this fledgling church to be the instrument through which he takes the gospel and fulfills what Jesus told him before he ascended, you shall be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's how God got it done through a squabble over food service. <laughs> Does anybody else find that ironic? I know y'all got masks on. I don't see anybody smiling. You know what? You know what I believe? I used to think that, oh, I really wish God would save this superstar, you know, this sports star, this actor, this actress, or this very talented, uh, gifted person. I wish God would save them, and then lots of people would turn to Christ and everything would... God doesn't need that. He can take a squabble between widows, who are sometimes known to squabble, Sometimes for very good reasons. But he takes widows and the squabble in order to move the church to select the men who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I bow and worship that wisdom. It isn't that God needs us. He doesn't. He's self-sufficient. He can get done whatever he needs to get done. Our problem with disobedience is that we just miss the blessing of being or participants in the action because of our stubbornness or our selfishness or our sin. But God does much more through our failure than he ever does through our success. God does more through our fo foibles and flaws than he does through our virtue. And I marvel at that. I bow down and worship him for that. Just as the church begins to do what God calls them to do, what are the results? We have a problem. We have a resolution of the problem. We have results. The gospel grew. That's what it means when it says the word of God grew. You're not listening as fast as they did this morning, so let's... Let's jump into hyperdrive here. The word of God spread. And it doesn't really adequately convey the meaning of the verb grew or increased. The word of God, which in Acts often is synonymous with gospel, grew in the sense that it influenced and extended the number who believed. In scripture, the word of God is viewed as a vital force or power reaching into people's lives and transforming situations according to God's will. Luke knew from the parable of the soils in chapter 8 
And that was probably in his mind with his encouragement that the seed of the gospel which fell on good ground came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Thus Luke coined the expression which means the church which is the creature of the gospel grew. This is made clear by the following clause. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So therefore we have an inclusio with the first verse. The number of disciples was increasing. And the satisfactory resolution of the conflict in the Jerusalem church made it possible for this ministry of the gospel to flourish and for the church to grow to take place even more rapidly because the word of God had free course throughout the culture. Many of the priests, notice, the very last thing, many of the priests who were what? Sadducees. <laughs> now, who are the Sadducees? I've told you a hundred times. They're the elite. They're the liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. And a lot of the priests who were Sadducees, many of them believed. Why? Because they saw the gospel demonstrated in power in both word and deed, and they could not deny what their eyes had seen and the grace of God impressed upon them. Their obedience to the faith here refers to the content of Christian belief and the lifestyle it demands and must have been a remarkable demonstration of God's intention to change lives through the ministry of the Word. And it must have also been at the same time a cause for alarm for the Jewish leaders more generally. But did the coming of so many priests strengthen the ties which bound a large proportion of believers to the temple order? If so, it must have made Stephen's position more difficult, as we will see next week. Tune in next Sunday, and you will see how God uses the seven servers to do impossible things. I get a lot of hope out of this, because as I look at the world situation presently, and I look at the virus, and I look at the chaos, and I look at the politicization of every single moment of life. I get depressed. I get discouraged. I give up. But when I look at it through the lenses of Holy Scripture, that's just God shaking things up. And He knows how to shake things up. And they rarely make sense to me, but He's shaking things up. Why? So that the gospel will continue to run across the globe. That's what I'm excited about. And that's what gives me hope. And that's what makes me get up today and tomorrow morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this text. It is so rich, so much more here than we could ever see because we're limited, finite people. But we thank you for the Spirit who teaches us your word and we pray that it would be brought to bear upon our daily life as your spirit impresses us by writing its truth upon our hearts in something we call sanctification thank you for that and may jesus be our treasure and we pray in his name amen